Cool sound, Scotty. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! of April 1912. A night to remember. A night when the largest, most luxurious liner of her day was speeding across the North Atlantic on her maiden voyage. No expense had been spared to make this ship a symbol of man's final victory over nature. Her first-class passengers were the very cream of society. The aristocrats from Europe and millionaires homeward bound to America. In the steerage class, everyone enjoyed their own kind of boisterous fun. Then there were the second-class passengers and the crew. 2,208 happy, confident people speeding across a flat, calm sea in a ship that everyone knew was unsinkable. Absolutely unsinkable. The ship was called the Titanic. What did you see? Iceberg, get ahead, sir! Kenneth Moore, whose warm, compelling sincerity holds him high in the hearts of cinema goers all over the world as Lightoller the second officer on a ship whose destruction shook the very foundation of man's progress and marked the end of an era. How many people are there on board? 2,200 or more. And room in the boats for... How many? 1,200. This is the epic drama of the greatest disaster in the history of the sea. Goodbye, my dear son. Here, for the first time, is the story of that night. A night when 2,200 men, women and children were faced with a terrible fact. The fact that most of them were going to die. No work of fiction could ever contain such incredible twists of fate or leave such terrible questions unanswered to haunt the mind. Why did that last ice warning never reach the captain? What happened on the ship that stopped within sight of this struggle with death, but didn't save a single life? No writer of thrillers could ever achieve such agonizing suspense. Sir! Sir! What the devil's going... Haven't you learned to knock before you come in here? It's a distress call, sir, from the Titanic. She's sinking. Carpathia, sir. She's making 17 knots and should be with us about 3.30. That'll be too late. It's the Stinking Paws podcast. Good morning, Scott here, as usual, with me, 
is the return of my Real Britannia co-host, Stephen. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. And the host of, now let me get this right, Glass Onion on John Lennon, Life and Life Only, Film Gold. Is there another one? No, just three. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, hello, mate. How you doing? Hi. Hi, everybody. Good to be here to talk about, um, not a nice story, but certainly a compelling one. My choice this week, we've reviewed this previously of Real Britannia. Now, that was Tony and I, so Stephen didn't get the chance to talk about this. It was way back, Stephen, wasn't it? I think it was about episode six or eight or something like that, because seven was James Bond, wasn't it, I think? And we have soon discovered that one of the key features of the Real Britannia podcast is a little feature. I say little feature, it's a bloody monster, actually, what we've created here. It's called the Village Hall of Fame. Now, we had the Hall of Fame here on Stinking Paws right in the very early days where we'd celebrate any actor or director or whatever that appears on the show more than three times, they get inducted into the Hall of Fame. And we thought when we started the Real Britannia podcast about six years ago that, you know, this this isn't going to attract too many people, you know, so it's called the Village Hall of Fame because it was just a tiny little affair. Stephen took the reins of <laughs> the curator of the Village Hall of Fame. Stephen, how many inductees, to the best of your knowledge, do you think we have in there now after five, six years? It's about 450. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just 450. Only 450. Now, the key to the whole of the Village Hall of Fame tends to revolve around one particular movie, which is this movie that we're reviewing this morning, which is Night to Remember from 1958. Because I checked on IMDb. Did you guys have a little look at the cast list on IMDb just or counted it to see how many people there are in this movie that are credited and uncredited? Didn't you have 300 from this in the Village Hall of Fame you were saying last time? Was that there like, are 300 people listed, yeah. Over 300 listed on the cast right. list, either credited or uncredited. So when Stephen does the, the spreadsheet, this the behemoth of a spreadsheet that he's got mm. going on, his computer, it's probably taking up all his memory on his, you know, his computer, this bloody thing. <laughs> my uh, connection to the internet is so bad, yeah. <laughs> we find that every week, whenever we watch a movie, and it doesn't even have to be an old movie, does it? Even recent movies, you will find that somebody who's in whatever movie we're reviewing appeared in The Night to Remember. A very weird one, yeah. I mean, we've got over 219 people on the list as far as having appeared in this and appeared in something else that we have uh, 219 watched. out of the 300. Yeah. And obviously some of those are people who have gone on to appear in 15 other things that we've watched. And they're, they're, they're the names of people where, apart from us, nobody knows their name or, or would recognise their faces. Yes. Um, this movie, apart from Kenneth Moore, your leading man, Okay, it hasn't got your Laurence Olivier, it hasn't got John Mills, it hasn't got all of those people that we always say we'd expect to be in this sort of British movie or in the Hall of Fame. It's a 300 strong supporting cast. I mean, Mm. there's not even Sid James or Sam Kidd, is there, in this, you know? (laughs) Can we get to it later when we go through the cast? But there's a couple of amazing, uh, I didn't spot these, I found them in the trivia page. Yeah. There's a couple of amazing uh, references here. Okay. Yeah, I okay. think from what I know of the Village Hall of Fame, I think the spirit of it is the unsung heroes, isn't it? It's, so, it's developed into that, hasn't it, Stephen? I think because we thought it would be the famous faces, and it's certainly not. Absolutely, yeah. It, it is the the backbone of the British film industry is the jobbing actor that is in the background that um, we celebrate, but 
other people are, are none the wiser that they ever existed. So yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Prime example, uh, the guy that fires the rockets and is, is doing the Morse code with the light is Cyril Chamberlain. Mm. Yeah. Cyril Chamberlain, top of the tree in the Village Hall of Fame, or second, isn't he, I think, Stephen? He's second, right? second behind uh, Guy Stanleven. Who is also in this movie. Yes. <laughs> oh, is, he? is Victor Harrington in this movie? Uh, I uh, sent Stephen a text. Go on, Stephen, rattle off yeah. those names. This, this yeah, is, we, this, this is the holy grail of the British movie, Andy. Listen to this, mate. <laughs> right, this is, okay, this okay. is where we're at, that we've got this, <laughs> this list of the ones that we particularly celebrate and look out for the, the rarities uh, uh, in some sense, but the ones that crop up so often that they're the popular unknowns, as it were. <laughs> Guy Stanleven is the top of the tree on that. But we've got Marion Stern as well, who we call the Duchess, who, you know, you see her face and you go, oh, yeah, I've seen her in something before. But you don't realise she's in virtually everything. You know, when you get her in a film and you also then get Cyril Chamberlain, and yep. you get one of the Harringtons because there seems to be this unknown acting <laughs> dynasty of, of, <laughs> of, of, of we get two Victor. in this one though, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. Thankfully, <laughs> we get um, Victor and, and Aiden in this. Victor and Aiden, we've never managed to work out whether they're brothers or whether they just happen to have the same name. But we've got in our heads that there's an acting dynasty of Victor, Aiden, and there's Victoria. That's and Victoria's it. definitely younger, so we're supposing one of their daughters. These are the people who, you know, there's also um, Fred Woodges in it, who, Fred again, Woodies. is somebody who played corpses in a Hammer film and then he's played a, <laughs> you know, he's played a taxi driver in another film. And, I think Fred Wood is actually, if you look at his credits on IMDb, I think he's played something like 20 different taxi drivers, isn't he? Or pub landlords. <laughs> that, that was his, his niche. He was taxi this, driver. This is it, yeah. We've got, the, we have noticed that there are certain people who, who sort of get typecast in there. <laughs> In, in their sort of background work, there are people who always play pub landlords and people who always play like yeah. an undertaker. There's somebody who always plays like a, a professor or, or a judge. But some of them, with the Harringtons particularly, you don't recognise, we recognise their faces, but it, other people would find it difficult because it's so hard to find an actual screenshot of them because yeah. they're always so yeah. far in the background. It's part of the fun, as I say, of celebrating the unknowns that did keep this, the film industry going. But this film is such a massive film. I mean, it was the only film that was being made in, in, in the studio lot at the time because they needed every resource for it. It was the biggest film ever made in this country at the time, I think. Mm. But it's easier to go through a list of jobbing actors at the time and, and work out who wasn't in the film rather than who was. Mm. Uh, that is that is the, the length of it. And yes, you've got Sid James is one of the examples of somebody who was in it. I noted Stanley Holloway wasn't in it, and which is maybe you know a bit wrong considering just a, a couple of years before he was in A Day to Remember. Uh, um, not putting <laughs> oh, him in the sequel seems unfair. The amount of people in this just really did suck in virtually everybody who was a chopping actor at the time. Um, and there are some curios in there. But really, this is a mammoth undertaking. So it's no wonder it also become the benchmark within Real Britannia for the film that, that had the largest number of Hall of Famers in it, really. All this film's really missing is Sid James going on a lifeboat going, <laughs> What, did, what was it you said, Stephen? He was going to be in it, but he, what did you say? He did, get, he did originally get cast as the iceberg, but he kept cracking up. Yeah. <laughs> I put it in, a, in a, a, a whimsical text message to 
cup. And I groaned. Molly eye emoji, as, as it. While we are sort of touching on the cast here and the Hall of Fame, mm. I bring this up every time we mention this movie. You must be sick of me mentioning it. It has got one of my favourite bits of movie trivia ever in the fact that four actors that have played Q in the Bond movies appear mm. in this film. Desmond Llewellyn is is the guy that's standing behind the gate, isn't he? Not letting the steerage passengers up at one point. That's right, yeah. yeah. Alec McCowan, who was Q in Never Say Never Again, is yep. the radio operator, I believe, or one of the radio operators we see. Uh, oh, no, he's the one. Is he the one who was also in Frenzy? You had to eat all that awful food that his yes. wife... Yeah, now he's he's the wireless operator on the Carpathia who yes. gets the message that they're sinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jeffrey Bowden, Cat Weasel. He was was it Casino Royale, wasn't he? he was Q in Casino Royale. Yeah, he's yeah. the he's the wireless operator from the ship that didn't get to them, the Californian. That's it. Yeah. And then yeah. the guy whose name I can never remember that played <laughs> the character called Major Boothroyd, who's in actual fact Q, Q's real mm. name, in Doctor mm. No before Desmond Llewellyn took over the role, is in this movie as well. Which I think is a great bit of movie trivia that the four, four actors that have played Q all appeared in this film. Can I go hmm. through my casting bits? There's only a few. Yes, there. come on. While we're on the car, let's get the cast out of the way before we get to the plot. Come on, because this is yeah. th- there's 300 of the buggers sitting on this list. We need to talk about most of them. Okay. Well, there's on. a guy called Bernard Fox who's the only person that was in both films. Uh, this one and the Cameron Titanic film. Really? Yes. Yeah, he played yeah. one of the lookouts, Frederick Fleet, who's one of the ones who spots the iceberg. And then he was Colonel, Darch- Colonel Archibald Gracie in the second film. Um, Hang on a sec. Is this the guy in the crow's nest? He's, he's the guy on the left yes. in the crow's nest, isn't he? Because the guy on the right is Dudley Sutton, I think. Uh, it must yes. be, uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, he appeared, I think he even appeared as an older man in an episode of The Young Ones or Bottom or something like that as well. Yeah. Oh, did he? Right. Yeah, yeah, I recognised him immediately. You probably yeah, noticed, I, you got on a black man, you probably, I'm sure you both saw that. Yep. And she plays, there's the wife of this couple, they must be first or second class, their son. Creepy kid in the bed. Who looks directly into the camera at one yeah. point. <laughs> That's uh, Arthur Lowe's son, yes. I think. I think, is that right? And then, um, oh, here we go. Get ready for it, folks. This is probably the one you've, you spotted, Scott. Norman is, this Rossington. Your, is this your Beatles reference? Of course it is. Yeah. Norman yep. Rossington. Yes. Is the guy who has to sort of rouse the steerage passenger. He's going, come on, chop, yep. chop. And there's all these... European guys going, what is chop chop? Uh, yes, Norman yeah. Rossington was in a hard day's night. And then one more, this is the weirdest one of all. Peter Grant, the future Led Zeppelin manager. Yes. Played a deckhand. Uh, yeah. I didn't spot him, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing cast list. I mean, if you actually look at the IMDb list itself, it's, it's sort of split into two halves because there is a lot of uncredited <laughs> appearances so i'm just laughing along with anthony about the split in two half (laughs) (laughs) because that's what the ship does yes yes not in this first not in this film so i'm going to assume that anthony has seen this probably more than all of us and and he's a, a titanic obsessive in a good way no, in a bad way. Is it a bad way? Has it become an unhealthy obsession? Mate? Yeah, all I think about is all those bodies at the bottom of the ocean. Oh. So, you know, it's just stinking pause. We can be a bit more risque, can't we? Absolutely. No, I, um, what happened was um, uh, I just did this two-part podcast about it, mm. um, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was a kid, when I was at school, our teacher, I think it was on the last year of secondary, of primary school, they played this radio documentary and I just found the whole thing so compelling that mm. I, I remember we actually asked our teacher if we could listen to it again the next day. Yeah. And from there, it's just 
I'll tell you what it is. I mean, we can get onto it later, but the symbolism of the whole story is just incredible because you've got three classes. It's it's almost like some weird manifestation of the Frost Report sketch, you know, with the <laughs> upper <laughs> middle, because you've got three classes, first class, second class steerage. Mm. And the, the amazing thing about it is that the first class are at the top of the ship. Yeah. Literally their quarters are at the top of the ship. Second mm. class are in the middle and the steerage are at the bottom. So when the iceberg hits... It's the steerage passengers and the crew, you know, working at the bottom who are probably getting paid a pittance. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who feel the impact. And the first class passengers, they just feel a slight jar. You know, one of them says, oh, the boat's gone a little bit queer. Really. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a little list of the boat. There's an amazing symbolism. And it just tells you so much about sort of society at that time. And the fact that even in death, you know, when they um, they had a rescue ship, not the rescue ship that picked up the passengers, but the one that was picking up the bodies. Yeah. With a Mackie Bennett. Mm. And uh, I think if the steerage passengers probably didn't have any kind of identification on them, it was something like that. And they were discarding them and not giving them a proper burial. So. Wow. But then at, at the same time, when they're all on the lifeboat, suddenly they're all equalized. And suddenly you'd have this first class, you know, colonel or whatever. Mm. He's forced to share, you know, six, seven hours in a boat with someone who ordinarily he would have nothing to do with. Absolutely. So it's yeah. such a weird story of how it's the differences in society, but then in a way everyone's equalised because once you get in that freezing water, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you're just trying That's to survive, it. aren't you? All in the same yeah. boat, so to speak. All in the yeah. same boat, literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you mentioning about the upper class, sorry, the upper class, the upper deck, you know, the passengers, the first class passengers, uh, mm. when the iceberg struck, there was a description I read somewhere that they just said it was, it felt as if it was a train pulling into a station. That was all it felt like, you know, that that was how they, they noticed. Whereas obviously yeah. there's this 300 foot gash below the waterline. Yeah. And as you said, the impact would have been felt further down. But they portray um, that well, don't they? Because the guys in the boiler rooms, mm. there's just this massive like steam and water coming in. And then yeah. they cut to the first class and it's like one guy takes a bit of the ice, doesn't he? And puts it in his drink. Yes. That famously yeah. did happen, yeah. I won't harp on too much about which what's accurate in this, but this is fairly <laughs> accurate to the book that was written by Walter Lord, which was considered the Bible of Titanic studies until mm. this recent one that you've just bought came out called On a Sea of Glass. And it's, yeah. Uh, not to make a Beatles reference, but it, it is like it is like the Beatles story is always changing. And the more you study it, the less you feel like, you know, you feel like you don't know anything in the end. Yeah, you can go too deep into these things sometimes, yeah, can't you? have got to stop it at some point. But yeah. I think on a sea of glass, for anyone interested, it's probably about as close as you're going to get to the real story you now, after yeah. decades of research. You know? I flicked through it yesterday, um, and it's, it's one of those books that you need to devote a bit of time. You need to absorb it because there is mm. too much information in there, perhaps. you know. It's, but mm. But if you do, you know, take a, a fascination in a certain subject, particularly this one, this is this is the definitive book, yeah. Yeah. Stephen, you've seen this fair few times. I mean, we mention it as we say every week on yeah. Britannia, this bloody movie. Um, and you only watched it again last night. How was it this time round? Yeah, I, I watched it probably uh, more critically than previous. Uh, although the last time I did watch it was shortly after uh, you and Tony had reviewed it for oh, right, okay. that provoked me into uh, into doing so a short time later um, I'd seen it before then but it's just one of these movies to put on in, in the background and something that well not quite in the background but it's something to just absorb and, and not really critically assess in the past so um, I mm. did a bit more certainly then and 
reinforced last night. I did go through my head all this stuff that similar to what Anthony's just said with regards to the the, the um, demonstration of the class dynamic and what that says. Certainly the figures support all of that. I'm not going to go big into all of that because it's not that's not what this podcast is about. It's certainly you know with the regards to how there was that separation, there was the way in which it impacted upon the different classes in different ways and disproportionately it impacting upon them that almost two-thirds, I think the figure was, of the people who survived were the uh, upper class that were setting the boats out only partially filled and they could have saved a lot more people and etc and it was all about to be perfectly honest also the thing that struck me that didn't really strike me before was the fact that some of this might have been avoided in the first place if the rich people hadn't have been so indulgent with their telegrams meant a critical one about a nice warning didn't get missed because they were too busy trying to send um, birthday wishes to their friends because they were so rich and able to do so so but the film itself absolutely i've seen it before and i think hold my hands up and this will surprise you but i've i've never seen the um the jim cameron um, (laughs) no that doesn't surprise me you not seeing that actually i've seen it i've seen it once (laughs) right now there's a lot of naysaying shall we say about the jim's jim's the jim's cameron version (laughs) the james cameron version but mainly because it's a bit lovey-dovey you know it's a bit of a chick flick with a, a disaster movie attached to it you know yeah yeah for me i quite like it i don't mind it i like the fact that you now get the chance to see a more accurate portrayal of what actually happened you know with the, the yeah. love story aside and i quite like that the technical side of it the way that james cameron brought the movie across so i've got nothing against the film at all absolutely nothing he stole a lot of bits from this one though didn't he well, it's the yeah. same story. This is the thing. Well, that's a lot of criticism. Oh, they, they've, they've lifted that from from the, the other film. Well, yeah, because it probably came from Waterlord's book, didn't it? You know, which, mm. as, as as Anthony said, was the definitive sort of Bible on on the history of the sinking. It was the only real sort of recollection that um, took in survivors' accounts because they were still alive in 1958. Obviously, a lot more people were still still there that were on board the ship to give their their first hand accounts of what happened. So. Yeah, he's going to steal mm. some of the things, but yeah, because that's what happened. That's how, that's what I'm I read. Already was already, you know, such as the um, the musicians and, mm. and that scene. It was particularly emotive for him when he'd seen it originally, and so he, he yeah. replicated it. And there's some other bits and pieces I've read that you know, um, even some lines that he's taken. Yeah, I've not seen it, so I can't be a naysayer about um, mm. about it. I should say that the film itself, it is the same story. Um, the, it does capture, I, I believe, it does capture the fact that the, the ship does split in two yes. rather than, um, I don't know, we're calling it a ship or a boat. I know there's some definition with people who are into these things to say which is which. And you, are, you know, there is that further accuracy because they, they didn't find the record until... Um, 1985 1985 yeah so but this is the the one that up until this point had done such a great job of it and it was the the last one i believe to have actually been filmed in this country anyway i think this one is is the benchmark for you know which if this hadn't have existed then james cameron's uh one would probably have never been made to be perfectly honest because it wouldn't have sparked his interest in the whole thing and then you know, steamrolled from there. Well, I think the Cameron film's got one massive weakness for me, one strength is that, mm. yeah, they're, they're doing this terrible rom-com with really bad dialogue. That's the thing about it. And <laughs> yeah. using using the Titanic 
to I mean he knew he was going to make a load of money because it, it's such a, a formula film mm-hmm. but ironically he claims that he made Titanic to finance his expeditions down to see the real ship you know two and a half miles down the ocean which is quite ironic if you think about it yeah but what it, it what it what it did do well because my criticism of Night to Remember and it's not really because it was made in 1958. If you look at it closely, it looks like there's about four or five hundred people on the ship. Wouldn't you say? It's much smaller scale, and there's a bit where um, I think it's Andrews, the guy who's the builder, who ends up just staring at that picture at the end. Mm. He says, "Oh, I'm sure we'll find a place for you on one of the boats," as if it's quite easy to get on one of the lifeboats, but. It doesn't give the idea. So at least the Cameron one, I just, I've only ever seen it once, but I watched a few clips. He gets the scale of it. You can see how, in those days, how massive this ship was. Of course, it's quite small compared to a cruise ship now, isn't it? But I've seen a comparison sort of photo that somebody put it up against one of those multi-deck yeah, cruise I've seen liners. I've seen that, yeah. And it's tiny, isn't it, it is. compared to it? <laughs> and, and that sort of cropped up in my mind while I was watching this, because obviously... Uh, sort of like nautical law changed that after this, there had to be enough lifeboats for the number of people on board the ship. Yeah. Obviously, that must still be enforced today, I'm assuming, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So yeah. how many people are on these new cruise oh, that's a good point. Oh, that's a good point. And where, yeah. where are all the lifeboats? That's a good point, yeah. The biggest yeah. cruise liner now is, I believe, it's this, this was two-thirds of the length of what the largest one is now um right. i think that's what i again that's something I, I did manage to read um and as you said with the the laws and health and safety being what it is now we've actually provided enough for everybody who might be on the boat rather than just those with money yeah. it, it's um it, you would imagine they must have a better way of organizing the, the lifeboat situation otherwise the entire um every available space on the side of the the boat would be would be like yes yeah. I, I can imagine they've got to be collapsible or inflatable or something like that rather yeah. than solid vessels that we see in this because it, it just crossed my mind that you know that's one of the key things that came out of this was the fact that the, the whole law had to change didn't it you know and better, better collapsible ones than they've actually got on the titanic now well, do you, do, you know oh, yeah, ironic, yeah. do you know the ironic thing the titanic actually had more boats than they needed uh, according to the regulations because the four collapsibles were extra yeah just in and, case and they weren't fully um fully, fully boarded anyway because oh, there was a lot of people no. who because this was at the time of um a national coal strike uh, oh yeah that's right. <laughs> my specialist era area about strikes. <laughs> but um the, the strike only finished uh, a couple of days before the titanic set sail and and a lot of people apparently because so many of the, the cruise ships were being cancelled a lot of people are, are similar to what we have the situation now there's a lot of parallels of what's happening now and what's happening back then with regards to people with trains now compared mm-hmm. to back then with the cancellations meaning people are just going oh well we're, we're traveling at all um, and it was yeah. the same with the, uh, the the ships there that they were people were saying oh well, the coal strike is going to be cancelled so what's the point in booking a ticket I'll wait until things stabilise again and then I'll, I'll go so um and there were some quite prominent people allegedly who would who had cancelled tickets so or bought tickets and then not travelled but JP um, Morgan JP Morgan for example who was the owner yeah. of the line wasn't he yeah, yeah that's the, right yeah. The, one of the Vanderbilts was on there wasn't he that that was the yeah. guy we saw towards the end Vanderbilt was it? Was it a Vanderbilt was, or a Brock? One, one of the Vanderbilts was on there. I think you're thinking of of Guggenheim. The one Guggenheim, uh, Guggenheim yeah. was the one that said he got into his uh, evening dress and said going to go down like a gentleman. 
Can I just ask you something about that? Presuming that's real, and and the valet, his valet, yeah, uh, sort of goes along with it. Isn't there a point where the valet would say, well, don't I have the right to save myself? This is the interesting thing about disasters. <laughs> At what point do the rules go out the window? Because in this film, it's interesting. You've got, you know, Desmond Llewellyn and others stopping the steerage passengers getting to the lifeboats. And in the real story, they were basically, they were nowhere near the lifeboats. And there was a sudden rush of them just as the last one was about to leave. Mm. And then they locked, they locked arms around the last, the last boat because as Waterlord said in the book, there were now suddenly 40 seats for 1,500 people. <laughs> yeah, can you, you can imagine, yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, you put yourself in a situation where you're, you're, you're stopping, stopping other people, by, by stopping other people getting onto the boat, you're also not getting on the boat yourself. Yeah, which brings yeah. us to what Scott was saying about where, at what point do you, does your protocols stop and uh, whether that's yeah. social ones with regards to being the manservant and you're going to go down with your, um, your master, which mm. this was probably the tail end of that era of where for hundreds of years, you know, the, the, the servants would have been uh, of the very rich would have been in a situation where they're expected to flippantly sacrifice their own lives. And, Absolutely. and basically mm. in, in the same sense as the slaves in the pyramids being be walled in. And uh, this yeah. was the tail end because I think that just after this, obviously with the, um, the first world war brought down a lot of those barriers with, social conventions um, yeah. but you've also you know you've got in here the the whole thing with regards to people doing the women and children first and some people who, who broke that convention or didn't break the convention but were just lucky in that there was an extra space and it, they were allowed to go on uh, even if yeah. they didn't want to and then the social stigma that was attached to them um, afterwards which is you know, there was numerous people who got accused of, of dressing as women to go on oh, the boat yeah. when, they, when there was no evidence they did so, which was just to, sometimes politically to blacken their name. And yeah. There was one guy who was a, a Japanese passenger who he's in, got ostracised by his in, entire family because he, he, they deemed he should have been, you know, should have gone down with the ship as well. And, and there was such dishonour. That um, you yeah. know, he had to basically uh, disown his own family and be disowned by them in order that they wouldn't be caught by the stigma. Mm. This is the the level of which the, the that social contract of people building up this this deference to to one segment of the society who not necessarily always deserving it. And like Scott mentioned before, they were picking the, the even when it came to dead bodies, they were picking out the rich people because. Yeah. It was needed for for their wills and for their inheritance and all these kind of things. Mm. It was needing proof of, of death by having their, their bodies rather than the, the poor people who didn't have anything to bequeath and therefore their bodies could just be left as, as flotsam. Mm. Mm. Did you say Japanese though, Stephen? Oh. Yes, I did. Yeah, so the oh, Japanese, yeah. There, was, there was eight Chinese passengers and, and one Japanese. Yeah, I was trying to think of a famous Japanese person who's just had a birthday. Can't I think. <laughs> Yeah, it's a woman who they, they always say broke up the Beatles. I can't think uh, of the name, but yeah, it's a private see, joke, isn't it? See this, <laughs> Anthony, this would only work if I'm a bit quicker at editing and put this show out tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, listeners, out. listeners, that was a private joke between <laughs> the three of us. Before. I think, to be honest, Cameron maybe overdid the sort of rich people bad, poor people good thing. Because I think it was more, but there was one. Never do that. Right, right. <laughs> but there was one lifeboat. I think it was lifeboat number one where they had twelve people instead of forty. Yeah. 
And there was a guy by the wonderful name of Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon. You'd never guess he was rich, would you? Brilliant. And, and I think in the real story, he did to some extent commandeer that boat. So I think there was an element of that. But I think I think the funny thing about it is that the way things were then, it's not that the the steerage passengers liked their station, but do you think maybe they just everyone just accepted it almost as if that was the only thing they knew or not? What do you reckon, it, there, Steve? There was there was a lot of it that was the social convention and people. Mm. There was obviously that when it further it got towards the end, the more people would would break with that food Absolutely, survival yeah. instinct. But originally, letting the rich people go first, and then people thinking, well, yes, we'll just get one of the later boats, rather than mm. them thinking at that point they're not going to get any boat. It was only as the realization ticked through, but. The fact that the boats were put out only partially filled. There is a, a, a theory out there which I, I've read that the Kenneth Moore character, uh, Lightowler, yeah. mis- misunderstood the instruction from the captain. The, the whole women and children first was misinterpreted as only women and children. That's um, right. And that's why the boats went only semi filled, uh. which could be plausible, could be not. It, it, you know, the, where the, the convention does break with regards to people accepting their riches as their betters and therefore them being rescued first um, it is, is a difficult one. Certainly, as you say, when they got on the boats, there was some that tried to maintain from the film what we saw. There was some rich old lady who was wanting to maintain the, the hierarchy even on the... <laughs> the, the, the yeah. Whereas... Where there was yeah. others who, who didn't, and notably they they did even at this point in cinema, they decided to slip in an American lady who resonated more with the probably the the poorer people of uh, America uh, to help sell the film over there, and she was somebody yes. who was more That's vocal about everybody being in it together, and that it's cliche in some ways, but then it's That's Molly Brown, also. isn't it? Yeah, they made a, a musical or something, didn't they, called The, the Unsinkable Unsink- Molly Brown. Unsinkable Molly Brown. She yeah. appears in the Cameron version. I think Kathy Bates plays her in the That's Cameron right, version. Kathy Bates, yeah. It was a bit over, it's a bit overdone, but the bit I wanted to ask you as well, I mean, you know, just after the ship sinks and that, that boat that I was telling you about, they didn't, they didn't call them the Duff Gordons, but that boat, and the rich woman says, oh, it's terribly cold in this lifeboat. Mm. I just, I just don't believe that, that people, I don't think rich people like that are, are evil. I just mm. think they're kind of out of touch, but the idea yeah. that that's all she would give a shit about. Yes, both sank. I but just also, find it hard to believe, but maybe, I don't know. I don't you've know. got to remember at this point, sort of early in the proceedings, most people still believe that the boat was unsinkable. It wasn't until mm. the boat starts listing, you know, that then they realise yeah. that something is dreadfully wrong here. You know, yeah. they're all there and it's just like, this is a bit of a chore, you know, this is a bit of a bother, you know, what do we have yeah. to, you know? They were still under the impression that nothing was going to happen. This was almost a drill or something. It was just yeah. a tiresome inconvenience yeah i'm only saying though that she said that just after the boat had actually sunk that's the point i was yeah, yeah. I, I understand what you mean there was a massive complacency but that really mm. came from everyone and there's lots of really disturbing stories about the captain and how not that he was a bad guy but how complacent he was and he'd actually used the word unsinkable himself yeah
I never expected to ask you to obey me, but this is one time you must. It's only a matter of form for you and the children to go first. Everyone here will be quite safe. Is that the truth? Certainly it is. If you please, madam, the children will follow. Now you be good girls and look after your mother. There we are. Oh. Goodbye, my dear son. Come on, son. Thank you. Right. Get everybody back. Well clear of the boat. Aye, aye, sir. Stand back. Come on, everybody. Stand back, please. Stand back, please, sir. We're going to work. Talking about the captain, I'm glad you brought him mm. up, actually. Mm. Lawrence Naismith, you know, great, great character. Yes. Do we see what happened to the captain in this film? I can't remember because there's a big thing about it in the Cameron version. But there's also, for someone that's studied the history a bit, Andy, there's a bit of speculation mm. as to what happened to him, wasn't there? There was a rumour that he committed suicide at one point, wasn't there? Uh, yes. And in fact, um, one of the criticisms of the Cameron film is that you see, um, oh, who's the name? It's an officer with a Scottish name. He's a Scottish officer. Yeah. And he's portrayed as shooting passengers. Yeah. And then shooting himself in the head. Mm-hmm. And he's someone who they've got a plaque to in Scotland. But it actually turns out from that on a sea of glass that there's a there's a chance. It's probably about 50 50 that, that that may have actually happened. Wow. OK. Yeah. But they were definitely they were firing off um, guns in the air. Well, probably in the air. <laughs> we are, <laughs> like I say, I mean, this this story, like I, like I was saying, I mean, you know, after a while, you never know because the research goes on and then. Conflicting yeah. stories, but um, definitely they were firing in the air because there there was panic at some point. Yeah, but they were complacent for a long time. Yeah, but we don't know we don't know exactly what happened to the captain. He apparently was spotted by one person uh, cradling a baby, which I think they took. One there's a steward, you know, steward a at the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that may be based on it, but we don't know really. I mean, obviously he went down with the ship, but we don't. Yeah, know the Cameron happens. version depicts him on the bridge, doesn't it? As it's That's filled it. with water. In um, this film, we just see him going onto a, a darkened bridge. Um, is that all it is? So I, I, I we, see that, we see him go through the doorway, and, and you can see the bridge there through the doorway, and you see him walk onto the bridge, yeah. and that's the last mm. we see of him. And yeah. like a lot of this, I mean, the, the bit with one of the, the crew, who uh, one of the officers who brings the lost child mm. to the rest of them, and, and that child being dead, and then he dies himself, that's accurate, apparently, to mm. what happened, and, and that is, you know, testifiable. But, but a lot, past a certain point, as you've said, you said, Anthony, it's all supposition after a certain point, because all the people who were actually were there um, <laughs> died. So, um, yeah, you, you know, yeah. you, you can't know for sure unless they managed to find the body of the captain still on the bridge with a, a bullet hole through the skull, then there's no way they'll know what, what he did do towards the end. And the testimony that they were using guns to, to try and control the crowd, whether that was just shooting in the air and threatening people or whether they yeah. actually did, did shoot anybody is a, is entirely questionable. But maybe they're just taking the guns to make sure they didn't fall into the hands of the people who were desperate to uh, to get off the boat as well, because that would have created a different situation. Absolutely. Well, how about this? When they got on the Carpathia, the rescue ship, obviously they'd spent the whole night in the lifeboat. Everyone's absolutely freezing, as you can imagine. But apparently when they got on the Carpathia and they were giving them coffee and brandy and when they'd all relaxed a bit, they were all discussing what had happened and they couldn't even agree about the details then. <laughs> directly after <laughs> it, the people who'd been there had seen it. I mean, obviously not the main details, but you know what I mean. 
They yeah. were arguing about details themselves. So it's never going to be, yeah, 100% accurate, is it? Walter Lord did the best he could because he, you know, interviewed survivors, but that was still mm. 30, 40 years down the line. When he was doing the research for the book, he managed to track down a, a number of the living survivors from it. And when they actually went to make the film and do the actual screenplay from his book, they, they did some, you know, trying to do some extra research to try and get that extra realism. And when That's they were right. doing that, they managed to uncover, you know, twice as many survivors. Um, obviously, oh. they had a, they, as a studio, they had a more budget to put behind these things rather than a, a lone writer. But they uncovered a lot more, and obviously, some of them had passed away by then, but um, yeah. some were still around. And obviously, you even had survivors right up until more recent times, to be perfectly honest. Even oh, I remember. Yeah, two months, two months old when they actually went, you know, the shit went down. So the memory was, wouldn't have been that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. One, but still, Milvina one, Dean is was the last survivor, and she was yeah, two months old when it happened. Yeah, there was one. It might be that woman. They used to wheel her out on every single sort of like chat yeah. show or what's my line or something like that. And it would yeah. be like, you you have a secret, don't you? Or you have an interesting story. Yes, yeah. I was a, but she was only a baby. You know, yeah. she was in her eighties at this point. You know, <laughs> she she missed the hundredth anniversary by about six months. Yeah, she died. Oh. At 90, she died about at ninety. I think it was. I think it was six months. Yeah, she was ninety nine. She she just missed it. <laughs> but she said, "Oh, it's great. You know, they just take me across, take me around the country. They make a fuss of me, and uh, I just have to talk about." <laughs> what do you remember about the disaster? <laughs> Not too much. Not a lot. Old, yeah. Here's a position. Water in the fore peak. Numbers one and two holes. The mail room and boiler room six and five. That means a gash 300 foot long from there to there, below the water line. Do you agree? Yes. Well? The pumps are keeping the water down in this boiler room, but the first five compartments are flooding. Well, what's the answer? She's going to sink, Captain. Just pick up on something Stephen was talking about when um, they're loading the lifeboats. Mm. Lytoller, the Kenneth Moore character... He was on one side and there was another um, officer on the other side. And the other officer was letting more uh, steerage in. But Lytol, as Stephen said, yeah, he, he, I don't know if he misinterpreted it or he was a bit gung-ho about, you know, women and children only. It's but captured the written- in the film, is that, isn't it? Because one of the passengers said, you know, this is all the, they're letting men on the boats on the other side of the ship. And this guy sort of gets a look on his face and starts backing off. Uh, yeah. from the crowd obviously very subtly wanting to try and like, get away from everybody and, and make a dash for the other side of the boat which you know you don't have to dash too far because it was a, although it was a massive ship it wasn't very wide it was just very long Lightoller as well the real Lightoller gave, gave the best description of the water how cold it was he said he jumped in because a lot of people as the boat was obviously listing so I can't remember if it was the bow or the stern was at the top if you went on one side of the boat that was out of the water, you'd end up like miles up and then there's people falling. Mm. So a lot of people, they jumped in the water before it sank and Lytoller jumped and he described it as like a thousand knives sticking into me. You know, it was just so... And in, in that book that you bought on a sea of glass, mm. they actually estimate how long you'd last in that and it's about it's about 10 minutes. They said, <laughs> you know, but then weirdly enough, this is my, my one criticism and I'm kind of saying this jokingly, there's yeah. a scene right at the end where Kenneth Moore is sort of sitting on the collapsible boat, sort of reflecting on what's happened, like quite mm. calmly. <laughs> what oh, actually right. happened was they spent the whole night on that boat and yeah. they were half in the water and half out because they were worried about if a couple of people more jumped in, it might tip the boat over and they'd all be 
they'd all be, uh, they'd all perish. Yeah. But, you know, the idea that he'd be calmly on that boat going, oh, yeah, so I think we need to think about the future. <laughs> Will that be the Carpathia? Aren't you glad to see her? Yes, I'm glad. But then I'm still alive. If only she'd been nearer. There are quite a lot of ifs about it, aren't there, Colonel? Keep up, quartermaster. Keep that line slack. If we'd been steaming a few knots slower, or if we'd sighted that berg a few seconds earlier, we might not even have struck. If we'd carried enough lifeboats for the size of the ship instead of just enough to meet the regulations, things would have been different again, wouldn't they? Maybe. But you have nothing to reproach yourself with. You've done all any man could and more. You're not... I was going to say, you're not God, Mr. Lightoller. No seaman ever thinks he is. I've been at sea since I was a boy. I've been in sail. I've even been shipwrecked before. I know what the sea can do. But this is different. Because we hit an iceberg? No. Because we were so sure. Because even though it's happened, it's still unbelievable. I don't think I'll ever feel sure again. About anything. Those guys were just freezing. They were out of their minds, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, because of the numbers of people they needed to have in the water, they weren't able to do that on an indoor tank that they had available because it just wasn't big enough. So they had mm. to go to, it was one of the lidars, I think it was Ryslip. They had to go and film there, at, you know, in the middle of the night sort of thing. And I've read somewhere that the, the extras were all reluctant to um yeah, get into the water and kenneth moore decided that you know he needed to get this going and, and to take the lead and etc and, and embody yeah. you know his character sort of thing so he was the first one that jumped into the water thinking right i'll just you know set the precedent and he said you know described it saying that the cold hitting you straight away oh. is heart stopping um <laughs> and straight away you're feeling that, that your body react to it all and, and shutting down there's a, a quote from him somewhere with regards to that and it's quite descriptive in the same way as what you've said the actual uh, character he was playing then described yeah. the the uh, impact of the water himself so there's a parallel there thankfully mm. with regards to how the, the two things play out the real life character and the person playing him experiencing the same shock and and it's interesting, yeah. Body and bodily impact from the water. And talking about if the same thing happened now, obviously they'd have all the technology and there'd be a mm. rescue ship there very quickly. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that did uh, cross my mind, I don't, not to make light on any of this, but when I was doing my podcast, I was thinking, you know, the um, the all the all the story with the wireless, yeah, you know, operators, mm. and the fact that they're they're getting all these signals and there's there's ships cutting in and there was lots of confusing information. It's like a very, very primitive WhatsApp group, isn't it? <laughs> it's like a 1912 version of a WhatsApp group. So, so Titanic sends a message, we're fucking sinking. And Carpath is like, sorry, man, we're 58 miles away, you know. Yeah. Sad face. It's one of those. It's, the California is going message unread. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or it's like, uh, yeah, California has joined the group. That's it, yeah. California has left the group. And it's like, oh, no. But um, I think maybe what people need to know is how long those wireless messages took and how many, as Stephen said earlier, mm. all the rich people, because it was very trendy. Yeah. 
the wireless was a new thing and it was very trendy. Yeah, they were sending all these messages and that was one of the reasons that they didn't get the ice. They did get the ice warnings, but Phillips and Bride, and Bride was played by David McCallum, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were totally overworked and they were working shifts. And in fact, I think Bride, I think they said this in the film, he, he stayed up to help Phillips even though his mm. shift was over because Phillips was just completely overrun and they were earning something ridiculous like, I don't know, $20 a month or something stupid like that. Yeah, getting on to, you know, that with regards to the, the crew, and it's, it's one of the, the more well-known facts, uh, I think, mm. with regards to all of that, that, that technically speaking, all of the, the staff on the Titanic, as soon as the ship was declared sinking, they all had their money and uh, jobs terminated. Yes. Um, so well, um, yeah, all these people... All these people holding back others to stop them from getting on boats and then also losing their own chance. Incredible, they, isn't were, it? they were they were doing that on their own back and weren't even being employed to do that at the time. So um, pretty uh, despicable in, in a number of ways because some of the survivors got back and found out that the money had been stopped <laughs> at the point at which, it had, to, the, to the minute, it had been um, no. declared a, a sinking ship. Um, which is, is, I mean, the other again indicative of of the whole thing. The other incredible thing is that all these steerage passengers, they were all going to a lot of them were going to live in America, but they had no idea what they were going to find. Yeah, they'd just been told that it was a new world. It's a bit like if you ever read The Grapes of Wrath or seen mm. the film. Yeah, they're going yeah. to go fruit picking in California, but they have they haven't a job lined up. So all these people, this is all they've got, and like you said, until they all realise how serious it is, they're all thinking. Well, hang on a minute. You know, the crew are thinking, well, if I defy a rich person, I might lose my job. There's my livelihood gone. And all these steerage passengers, they're trying to hang on to all their stuff because that's all they've got in the world. You know, that's what's so amazing about a story. It's so multi-layered, you know. Talking to crew. Sorry. hmm. Talking to crew. How does the scene sit with you guys? The, um, The steward that gets drunk. Almost a bit of comic relief where it's not needed it's partly it's partly true he did actually he was yeah. sort of insulated but they give the idea that all you have to do is drink a bottle of scotch and you can you're suddenly magically insulated against the water for, <laughs> for hours it was quite amazing though he was drinking but then he started drinking water but he was mm. also rescuing people yeah i think that was a bit of a device wasn't it yeah he starts throwing think, the uh, the chairs doesn't he into the water it, yeah, yeah. yeah i think medic- medically that's the the, the, the it's wor- worst thing to do is to to be drunk when you this whole thing of having a whiskey um mm. or whatever yeah. it, it makes it harder for you to to keep warm because of what it does to your blood it makes it, it all it does is is make you less sensitive to the fact that you're freezing cold doesn't yeah, actually keep you warmer yeah. um uh, but yeah that you know it's interesting that yes he, he's doing that to uh, numb himself from the whole distress and chaos that's going on and, and how traumatic it is. But then part of him is still thinking about doing something for other people, uh, yeah. like you say, with trying to put things that might float um, that people could grab hold of. I noticed there's no doors that are thrown out for people to cling onto, um, which is a difference in this film. Yeah. Doors that more than one person could crawl onto, but only one person. Oh, that's a massive it. thing, um, isn't it, on the internet? How much room is, is on that? Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's why I only know it because of the internet rather than actually having seen the scene. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing that there was potential for if this had been managed differently, there would have been more lives saved in many different ways. The the what ifs 
for the Titanic, I think, is a, an entire series of podcasts that if mm. this had been done different and that had been done, done differently. But as far as, you know, I can't fault somebody if they decide that they're in such a traumatic situation, they decide to have some drinks. And I mean, you know, he had a load of drinks and then decided, and then during the course of that, he was still helping people, whereas we saw in the mm. film there was the rich people who were stood around playing drinking games and, and stuff, and they weren't busy trying to help anybody. They were still expecting to be waited on, to be perfectly honest. But there's a, there is a difference there, I think, that I'm less sniffy about him and, than I am perhaps some others that were drinking. There's a good scene, actually, just after that, where the steerage passengers get into the first-class dining room. Oh, yeah, they can't yes. believe. And this. the look on yeah. their faces, yeah, when they realise how extravagant, how opulent the whole situation is, the difference between, you know, where they've been dancing Irish jigs and playing the violins and, and, and then go up to this immaculately gold-leafed dining room. You know, it's incredible. Yeah. That that really sort of hit home. This time round watching it, I always forget that they do spend quite a bit of the film actually after the ship has sunk. There's There's quite a decent 10 15 minute segment afterwards you know of the of the guys mm. in the water and the boats which i always forget because I, I just always think that the film ends once the ship has sunk the beginning of it is quite snappy as well you get a little bit of kenneth moore on the train mm. at the beginning and the irish family going off on the horse and cart but it doesn't dwell on the fact too much that it sailed to you know it's belfast southampton france wasn't it or something like that yeah, before it and yeah. yeah we we instantly go to the night of the sinking we don't have any build up of the two nights before or whatever which i like because it just makes it a, a punchier film and and mm. can you imagine guys this is 1958 i mean it's not color so it's not bold and brash this movie but mm. can you imagine sort of the scale of this seeing this in 1958 this must have been incredible to have seen yeah i mean i'm picking holes in the scale of it but you know yes definitely you know it's pretty it's pretty epic in a way isn't it yeah but, absolutely it's it's a massive undertaking for the studio and it would have been mm. i think for for cinema goers that particularly post-war a lot of films were done on a, a quite a restricted basis so they would try and limit even when they were doing things that they wanted to portray mass events uh, such as you know battles and things you'd be concentrating on just a small number of people rather than showing the the full scale because restrictions with on plenty of things not just restrictions on budgets but you know you got to remember also there was you know restrictions on supplies of of things because of post-war rationing etc so this would have been a, a massive undertaking and would have been a spectacle to see on screen which is probably why it got the audience it did. So yeah. recognising that, Scott, is absolutely right, that this was epic uh, before there were epics, really. It's it's that um, era, isn't it? Because the year after 59 would have been Ben-Hur. Most TVs were sold in 1952 or whatever, the coronation, 53. And cinemas were fighting a losing battle against television, weren't they, at this point? So that's why cinemascope and widescreen and colour and all of these sort of things appeared the, the epics appeared Stephen that's right in the late 50s and this mm. is Britain's answer to it and it works really well it still stands up this film I enjoyed every minute of it on Friday watching it I mean there's no criticism from me at all from this film apart from the creepy kid in the bed that can't act <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know um, I've, I've seen this a dozen times you know and, and I still mm. found things in it this time round that I'd forgotten or I'd missed, you know, it, it was just the mm. whole, um, like I say, the end sequence at the end, I've, I've forgotten there was this 
whole drawn out bit at the end after the boat had finally sunk. And I was remembering stuff that weren't in the film as well, because I was probably getting confused with the James Cameron one as well at mm. the same time. But you guys say you both enjoyed it this time around, yeah? Well, definitely. I mean, the thing with the the Baker is comic relief. There's very little artistic license in this film, actually. And there's mm. just little bits. And I like as well, for cinema goers, they probably would have liked the fact that at the end they have that mass for the victims. And then they tell you at the end all the changes that have been made. Yeah, the yeah. International Ice Patrols. It's a nice kind of a heartwarming ending because it is a story that anyone, if they read the real one, that you can learn a lot from it, you know. Yeah. Might make you a better person, even you know. Who knows? <laughs> the only criticisms you could have of this film is is a few inaccuracies, which are, are things that have come to light since. But there's no yeah. way of them knowing. No. Uh, this is absolutely as accurate as it has ever been told to, um, up to that point, and for many decades afterwards, was the the definitive version as far as accuracy. I think the, with the exception of of the small child, I think elsewhere the there's some you know performances are spot on you know everybody is believable certainly that is something that helps it along we have a situation where there aren't a lot of real big names like you said in this to carry it across is ensemble thing of of people supporting each other really and supporting the story and scale Mm. of it is still impressive now and i don't think there should be any reticence from anybody with it with regards to the fact that it's a film that is just over two hours long. Um, yeah. And I know some people don't, aren't always as keen to watch a black and white film and people, some people aren't as keen to watch films that are over a certain length. And I know there are even some um, really oddball people out there who won't watch a film with subtitles. But um, <laughs> the, the, the fact is with this film, it's over two hours long doesn't feel like it although it feels epic it doesn't feel drawn out because you have that that setup is where there isn't a action as such but it's incredibly short and then it because there's so much going on not too much to be able to take it all in but certainly enough to gain extra every time you watch it it is a film that you can watch through once and and see a lot in there and it keeps going and barreling along but also then you watch it again and as, as scott said notice bits that he hadn't noticed before no matter how many times you've watched mm. it because mm. it's such a big story they don't concentrate on just the big story they they have put enough in there and, and it doesn't feel forced but they put enough in there of of the personalized stories and i think they, they get the balance exactly right on on those elements to be perfectly honest uh, which is what makes this such a a, a film to remember for coin of is um because it, it you know it hit the mark exactly right in so many different ways it, it is the benchmark for not just for tellings of the titanic story but i think tellings of other similar disasters or or things like that if they're talking about a building collapse or they're talking about other earthquakes mm. or whatever this is i think the benchmark of where you you get in that mix of the the epic and the personal yeah very good yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah it goes along at a decent pace it doesn't flag but then it gives you each aspect of it you know the beginning when they're all very complacent and then you get the iceberg and you can see all the different reactions and then like you said after it sinks you get a little bit of the lifeboats and then uh and then you get the technological changes that were made yeah very yeah good absolutely well worth employing all those 300 people yeah <laughs> <laughs> And I yeah. still didn't spot Victor Harrington. I, didn't, <laughs> I still didn't see no, him. No, <laughs> I didn't see him. Or no. Marianne Stone. I didn't. I didn't recognise her. So oh, I, I think I, I did see her. Uh, yeah. One of the the people briefly <laughs> um, 
I think she was transferring from the deck onto the, and I think she even screamed. I think um, <laughs> so. She did actually get a, a central location in the actual shop for a very brilliant. brief for a split second. Brilliant. But no, and I saw Sol Chamberlain, but no, I didn't see the the Harringtons, uh, and I didn't see uh, Fred Wood and the others. Uh, yeah. Fred Wood, I didn't see. I think I saw a guy stand even, but I'm just just gonna have to watch it again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay that's been a night to remember we three shall meet again at some point so let's take a little break and we're going to find out what Anthony's selected for us for the next time it's the end boys we've done our duty we can go now Now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Okay, as I mentioned there before the break, it's going to be Anthony's turn to select what we're going to be watching next time. Surprise us, mate. What have we got? A bit of a change of pace. <laughs> this is going to be pretty intense for a Sunday morning. So Uh-oh. anyway, okay. right. So um, yeah, drugs and indeed alcohol have always been sort of pretty fertile sub- subject matter. I'm sure you boys have done train spotting. Have you on the other podcast? We have on the stinking pause, yeah. Yeah, but this film's a little bit different because drug addiction's normally just young people, but in this film it's slightly different because it shows how uh, different drugs affect different people, including a middle-aged uh, divorcee, heartbreakingly played by Alan Burstyn. Sounds like a review, this, doesn't it? It does. Um, yes, this is uh, from 2000, Requiem for a Dream, directed by... Yes, it's not as hard to watch as Irreversible, though, folks. Uh, Darren Aronofsky, who I knew from The Wrestler, but I, I haven't seen Black Swan, but that's it, another one he's famous for. But I've seen both of those. This one I've avoided. 
Uh, have you? Have you seen it, Stephen? I haven't. No, I'm aware of no. it, but no, I haven't actually seen it. So. Jennifer I mean, Connelly, you know, isn't it? Yeah. Jennifer Connelly, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, Ellen Burstyn is just incredible in this film. Mm. Um, I knew her from, uh, I guess it's, uh, oh God, which one's she the mother? No, it's, um, which one is she the mother? Oh dear. The Exorcist, the Exorcist. Exorcist, yes. Let's yeah. get that mixed up, the Exorcist and Karen. Oh yeah, I'm thinking of Louise Fletcher, aren't I? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, it's not a film that's going to make you feel great about the world, I'll be honest, but... <laughs> It's uh, it's just a. I think it's an incredible piece of filmmaking, and um, if it serves the purpose to keep people off uh, hard drugs, um, then it's probably <laughs> serves the purpose. But Let's I see think if it's straight and Scott out then. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and as you say, no, perfect, perfect Sunday morning viewing, chatting about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll probably watch it on Saturday night and then we can uh, get up nice and early on Sunday and uh, <laughs> talk about it. But no, it's a very, very, it's a very, very good piece of filmmaking in my opinion. So I think you'll enjoy it, quote unquote. It's that, it's going to be one of those, isn't it? We, it's hard to say the word enjoy um, yeah. with the subject matter, but yeah, you do enjoy the movie. Well, we are, I did mention jokingly ir- irreversible because I know you're going to review that at some point. Aren't you? We're re-reviewing it, yeah, for our birthday celebrations. Yeah, we're yeah, I think ten years old this year. Yeah, it's not as hard to watch as that, but it has got that kind of camera work, that amazing, amazing yes. camera work. So, uh, yeah, okay. it's a good film anyway. Excellent. Well, mm. I'd like to say I'm looking forward to that, but I'm, again, <laughs> it just sounds wrong. Looking forward to watching that one. <laughs> Well, double bill with Irreversible, Scott. There's a few hours. It could well be, couldn't it? I might watch them both in the same weekend and get them out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, time to wind things down. Now, Stephen, thank you so much for being here, as always. Um, It's a little bit weird having you as a guest rather than a co-host and you not doing the the Hall of Fame. I'm expecting you to, like, you know, whack the spreadsheet out and start rattling off lots of actors' names to me today. Yeah, and, and neither do we have any bingo accounts, so... Oh, for the hammer, yes, for the hammer horror bingo, yeah. No, thank you for being a guest. Did you want to say anything about Real Britannia, how wonderful it is? It obviously is wonderful. It's, uh, you know, anybody who's interested in how special British cinema is uh, should check it out, really. I'm sure people are already aware of it if they listen to Stinking Paws anyway, but um, certainly we're, you know, we're plumbing the the, uh, route of our own and... um, trying to do what we can to showcase the, the variety and uh, the wonder of British cinema and it takes all sorts uh, apparently uh, including us too thank you very much <laughs> 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 and Anthony again thank you for being here mate. this is becoming quite a regular thing and I'm really enjoying it now so this little, yes. this little you weren't enjoying it originally but he's really enjoying it now I'm, I'm now yeah I've got used to the pair of you um, <laughs> tell us about all your bits and pieces you've got in the pipeline mate all right. Well, it depends where this is going out, isn't it? Should I? I'll be should as I, quick should as I, I can. I, oh, should I say, I hope you're all having a lovely summer. Um, no, just kidding, just kidding. You're optimistic. Summer <laughs> 2025. Yeah. Right, Glass Onion on John Lennon. Just past four years on uh, oh, well Lennon, done. surprisingly enough, and a few more Beatles generally related uh, uh, episodes. Life and Life Only, yes, I did do a two-part on the Titanic, which is called Legends and Folly, The Remarkable Story of RMS Titanic, which has just come out recently. Just one final thing, actually. If I could Mm. just recommend, there's so many Titanic documentaries out there, as you may have noticed. I just want to recommend just a handful of them. There's a two-parter called Death of a Dream and The Legend Lives On, and they're actually narrated by David McCallum, who played Howard Bride in this, yeah. (laughs) 
they sort of appear and disappear from YouTube, but you might be lucky and they're still there. And then Ghosts, Ghosts of the Abyss is all about um, the aforementioned Mr. Cameron yeah. diving down to see the real um, the real ship. Yep, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And film is... Gold. Oh, hang on. Film Gold. <laughs> <laughs> We're recording a special Film Gold next week, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we are. Is that going to be relevant, though? <laughs> <laughs> Film Gold is my neglected third podcast. It's uh, enough effort to do the other two, but occasionally I pull out, pull out a film review there. Yeah, next week's Film Gold will be out before this episode, so right. just work it out amongst yourselves where you're going to listen and when you're going to listen to it. Okay. <laughs> right. This has been the Stinky Pause. I've been Scott, he's been Steve, and he's been Anthony. Cheers, guys. See you all very soon. See you later. Take The management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astronauts, that infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said Don't wear a frown Try positive thinking Laugh at your troubles instead You've got to look On the bright side On hope so much depends With your confidence sinking Positive thinking Helps you on the way my friend When things look black Try Positive thinking, treat every season as spring. No glancing back, try. Positive thinking, trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking, we'll get together and life won't let us down. Shut up. Oh, shut up. We enjoy it.